You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. We are going through a series called Into the Wilderness. Um, I think for most of us, we know that. And so far, we have covered three messages, three sessions. Uh, in, in the first session, we looked at the gifts that God gives to us as we go through suffering. Because that's what it means to go through the wilderness. This word wilderness seems to be pointing to some kind of suffering. And, and by the way, this uh, wilderness word uh, seems to be pretty popular in Scripture. and It shows up about 320 times, Old Testament and New Testament. So in the first sermon, we looked at the fact that God is truly committed to our highest and our best. And it doesn't mean the highest and the best car, the highest and the best house, you know, the highest and the best, you know, uh, way of living when it comes to the quality of life. No. <laughs> committed to transforming us into the image of his son, Jesus, right? And he loves us with a perfecting kind of a love. So he is committed to our highest and our best when it comes to bearing fruit and having victory over sin and the joy and the peace that and the satisfaction that only can come from Jesus. That's what we're talking about highest and best. Yes, and he gives us a lot of other blessings when it comes to, you know, uh, personal possessions and material possessions for sure. And he's so willing to our highest and our best that he's even willing to allow suffering in our lives to get us there, right? That's what we, we touched on. In our second message, we looked at another kind of wilderness or another dynamic that can happen, you know, in, uh, in wilderness. We looked at the prophet Elijah, and now after a great victory, uh, the victory at Mount Carmel, he was disillusioned, and he was afraid, and he was confused, and he was scared in the wilderness, in his wilderness. And our big takeaway was that when we get disillusioned, when we get you know, afraid. And when we get, you know, confused, we are called and challenged to just unplug and turn the phone off and, you know, open up a Bible and, and, and be in silence and fight for that silence and listen to the still small voice of God and, and just live there for a while because God will speak. God will bring peace and rest to our soul. By the way, how are you doing with that? Because that's exactly what we need to hear when we go through the wilderness, right? God's still small voice that can bring peace and rest. And last Sunday, Lucas did an amazing job at presenting to us another kind of wilderness. Uh, namely, when we are being tempted. A different dynamic that can happen in the wilderness. And I don't know if you remember, um, but the three main takeaways, the three main things that he challenged us with was the fact that when we go through the wilderness, we need to remember some things. You guys remember that? To remember who truly satisfies us. So it's very crucial as we are being tempted in the wilderness to remember who truly satisfies us. That's only Christ. And then to remember who protects us. And then again, that is Christ. And then who makes us great, meaning, man, who can live uh, you know, through us and can enable us to live in God's standards, right? That's, again, Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And today we'll be looking at a different kind of work that God does in the wilderness in our lives. Simply put, I want to be frank with you right from the beginning. Sometimes God allows us to go through the wilderness, through suffering, because we love our idols too much and we love God too little. Simply just because of that. But he's so gracious, I believe, and loving because he really wants to fix the order of loves in our heart. And he's very efficient at doing that in a season of wilderness, isn't he? And what happens when God allows the wilderness in our lives is that our idols are exposed for what they are, a bunch of frauds, a bunch of phonies, powerless and helpless. So we are going to be looking at the wilderness ministry of John the Baptist and how God used him. And we see this in Matthew 3. 
how God used him to bring about the first revival that Israel has seen in about four centuries, 400 years. But there's another dynamic that I, wanna, that I want us to see today that I've actually seen our text in Matthew 3. That widespread suffering, a widespread going through the wilderness can lead to widespread revival. A corporate turning back to God, right? And John will be giving us a few steps, and we see this, we're going to see this in Matthew 3, in turning back to God, in turning back to God personally, and then turning back to God corporately. They're the same steps. But let's, let's talk a little bit about John the Baptist before we see him in Matthew 3, which is our text for today. The beginning of, of the Gospel of Luke, uh, interestingly enough, doesn't start with the birth of, of Jesus. It doesn't. It actually begins with the birth story of, of John the Baptist, and we would call John a miracle baby. And the reason for that is that his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were old and unable to have children. But God sends a message right through an angel, Angel Gabriel, telling him that, hey, your child is going to be a prophet. He is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, Elizabeth, by the way, another fun fact, is related to Mary. And that puts Jesus and John as cousins or second cousins or twice removed, I'm not sure. Another interesting fact about John is that the last thing that we know about him at the very end of Luke chapter 1 is that John grew in wisdom and stature, and then he lived, where? In the wilderness. There we have our word. Until the day that he made his public appearance to Israel. I mean, this guy, he was forged in the wild. He was forged in the desert, literally. And he lives this wilderness life, as we'll see in our passage today. But other than this miraculous birth story, we don't know anything else about the next 30 years of his life, right? And then, mysteriously, he just emerges from the wild into this, his public ministry with a powerful, powerful message. So let's go ahead and jump into our teaching text. I'll just read. Uh, so we're going to be in Matthew 3. Verses 1 to 12, but we're going to read just a few verses at a time. So for now, we're going to read the first three verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is who who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What we see here in the first three verses, we see this just simple but powerful, powerful message of John. Well, ultimately, God's message. And he doesn't spend too much time on a preface or too many details of building up that left hook at the end of the sermon, right? He goes straight for the jugular. And notice that John doesn't just write a best-selling book either and gather the crowds that way, right? Um, he, he doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to the, these prominent religious areas. He doesn't get behind the mic. Uh, he's out in the wild. He's out in the desert, and people are just flocking to him. This is actually the first revival that Israel has seen in about four centuries. And there's a prophetic silence between the last words that God spoke to the prophet uh, Malachi. And by the way, our next series is going to be in, in Malachi verse by verse. I'm super excited about that. So there's this prophetic silence between the last words that God speaks, that God spoke through the prophet Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament. Four centuries, 400 years of a prophetic silence. And John the Baptist is the one that breaks that silence or ultimately, obviously, God breaks that silence through John the Baptist. And, 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 and even in this, the verses that I just read, he is the voice that cries out in the wilderness. Let me just pause for a second and ask you, when was the last time you heard God speak to you? Has it been 400 years? <laughs> Feels like that, right? <laughs> it was a long time before the Israelites heard God speak. How about you? Has it been long? Are we too busy? Hearing God's voice? You may need a wilderness season to hear God speak to you again. It's not an easy thing to say. As, I was, as we're kind of getting ready, through, you know, um, 
prepping up for these sermons, it, it is so not easy. These are hard words to preach on. No one likes suffering, but God somehow uses it for our good. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. End quote. In other words, what Lewis was saying is that we are probably too preoccupied to hear God's voice. We're too busy. Our hands are too busy. Our ears are too attuned to our comfort, to the pleasures of the world, to our luxury and toys. And, and you may say, dude, I'm not, I don't live in luxury. Come on, I'm, I'm stressed all the time. And yeah, our ears are too acclimated even to hearing, right? Only our anxieties speak to us, our problems, our stresses, and our fears. Therefore, because God loves us with a perfecting love, not a fluffy kind of a love, not a, not, a, not a pampering kind of a love, he can't just leave us in that miserable state to ruin our lives. He, he won't do that. He loves us too much. Then he's got to allow some suffering so that our hearts would again fall in love with him and make him Lord over our lives and so that our ears would again get accustomed to hearing his voice. So yes, C.S. Lewis, pain insists upon being attended to because God has a message to get through to us. And when we finally surrender and attend to the pain and hear the message, it means that we are probably turning back to God because that's the title of the message, turning to God. Remember, we talked about this in our first message the first question we want to ask when we go through suffering is, man, when am I going to get through, through to the other side because I can't take the pain? Like, let's do it as quick as possible, right? Let me just, get let me just fix the problem right now. Let's just, you know, change our circumstances because I, I don't like pain, right? I don't care when anyone says, let's just get the pain away. Let's just, you know, let's just get through to the other side. But the question that we need to ask, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, is God, what do you want to say through this season of suffering? What are you doing, God, in this season of the wild? And another question that I want to introduce this morning in our, in our message today is this. A question that we need to learn how to ask frequently when we go through suffering. Lord, what do you want me to do through this season of suffering? So yeah, the first one, Lord, what are you saying? What are you doing in this season? And then, Lord, what do you want me to do through this season of suffering? And in a lot of cases, this is what he's going to say. And I'm not saying that every season of suffering he's going to say this, or, or at least that's the reason why you're going through suffering. But in a lot of cases, he is going to say this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is exactly the message that John breaks the 400-year silence with. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And maybe there's, there has been a long silence in your life as well. Well, it looks like you need to break that silence by turning back to God, repenting. Find yourself in the wild. I think we all are, in a sense, with the whole world. We're going through a pandemic. The world is just going crazier and crazier. Well, maybe that's what God wants us to do then. And that's exactly step one in turning to God that we see in our text. Repentance. To repent. And I'm not sure what comes to mind when you hear that word, repent. We've talked about it here a few months ago, but I do want to take a different approach to it this morning, right? I'll tell you, I think for most people... It's an abrasive word. People don't like this. This is not being preached on for sure, but it's all over in scriptures, all over. Now, it may sound counterintuitive, but sometimes, I'll say this, sometimes victory over some sins in our life delays. Do you know why? Do you know why sometimes you still struggle with immorality or you still struggle with 
jealousy or being controlled by fear. Do you know why? Because God desires to teach us how to truly repent of that sin. Yes, sin in our life is a problem, sure. But so is a life where we haven't learned how to truly repent of sin. This is what I believe of us in the West, even looking at my life. Again, I'm preaching to myself. The reality is that we do a crappy job repenting. And a lot of times when, when, when we do it, it's just not biblical and it's just not genuine. We just go through the motions. I've said this before, but the problem in the world is not sin, but it's unresolved sin. And, and we, we, fall, we all fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible says, meaning we, no one is without sin. We all sin in different ways. The idea is that we should get better at sinning less and less and less, right? But, but the, the reality is that we all sin in different ways. So if that's the case, we should get really, really good at knowing how to repent, right? It just makes sense to turn away from our sin, right? And to bring it at the cross, to learn how to do that really, really well. And then to turn fully towards Christ. That's what repentance is. I'm sure we've all probably seen a pastor illustrate the concept of repentance during a Sunday morning sermon. I'm sure we have. I'll, I'll explain it. I'll, I'll say what he does usually. He walk, walks across the stage okay, and saying, this is the path of sin. And that's what we do. And repentance is stop. You just stop. Right? Stop from going you know, further into sin. It, but, but not just merely that. As we, as we stop, repentance means to turn away from sin and to turn around and focus on the Father. And now your direction is the Father in Jesus Christ. So it's not just stopping. I'm not going to sin anymore, but it's turning away, turning around and looking at the Father. Now we're walking towards God. That's what repentance actually is. This is absolutely right. Repentance involves both turning away from sin and turning back to the Father. It does. However, this illustration fails to provide the posture of our heart as we come back to God. Because it's hard, it's really hard to describe that. What's going on internally? I can go through the motions, I think. I can just stop, stop, just white knuckle it. Just don't sin anymore. Turn to God, just pray, just look to God, right? But what's going on in your heart as you do that? I think this is a very crucial dynamic to understand as we learn to repent. It is a great sign that your repentance is actually genuine. And we, and we find this in Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. The Lord calls to Israel and says this, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting. And here we go with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. In the Old Testament, people commonly express great grief and anguish by tearing their garments. I'm just going to just rip my clothes because Jewish people were very dramatic, very emotional. Oh, yeah, look at me, Lord. I'm like, oh, I'm so upset because I sinned against you. But more than caring about the proper exterior signs of being upset about your sin, God cared that they actually grieved over their sin in their hearts, right? And grieved to the point of weeping and mourning, not just kind of going through the motions and just ripping their garments. No, that's not enough. In his famous psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, verse 17, David very clearly reminds us that God does not delight so much in the outward signs of repentance. This includes, you know, uh, sacrifices. And for us, it would include a lot of things. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Really quickly here. We're not talking about shame and condemnation. That's not what we're talking about. That the enemy wants to bury us under, and he does a very good job at it. That's not what we're talking about here. Right? We are talking about godly grief. We're talking about weeping and mourning over our sin and the destruction of our, and what our sin does, 
Again, we're not talking about shame and condemnation. And I challenge you to read at home, when you go at home, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. We don't have time to go into that, but it speaks, those, that passage speaks about godly grief versus the worldly grief, right? But we can so easily be in a habit of going through the motions when it comes to repenting. Because we, we, we hear it all the time. Well, I hope we do. But these passages show that the most important thing is the condition of our heart. Yeah, you can go through the motions, but what's going on in your heart? Do you weep over your sin? Does that happen anymore in the West? Because we look at our churches and we're all so put together. It's okay for adults to cry and to weep, but we never do. So I wonder what's going on in our hearts. How this weeping and mourning thing works. Does your repentance look like a heart that has been broken and tore like a garment? Broken and contrite as it beats for God before God? Again, I'm asking myself that question. I'll tell you, this attitude is missing from most of our repentance, I believe, in my life too. It's, it's, it's the very thing God is trying to teach us today, I believe. And I think that's why we still struggle with habitual sin. We, we like, Lord, I have no victory. I, I'm still, I, I, there's a lot of immorality in my life. There's, there's, there's no self-control. I can't. And that's probably because we're not repenting genuinely. There's no weeping over the sin. We just go over the motions and like, oh, I did it again. Okay, Lord, I bring it to you. Forgive me. Yeah, yeah okay, great. Let's, let's go to the next part in life. No, 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 it doesn't work like that. We've become so desensitized from a genuine repentance. First, we simply need to ask for it. That's what we, because the question is now, Lord, how do I get a broken heart? <laughs> like, teach me. How, how do I weep over? How do I get that feeling or that whatever that is in my heart so I can weep and mourn over my sin? I know it's a weird question and a strange question to ask, but first, we simply need to ask for that. Do we even pray like that? <laughs> like, Lord, I see this just garbage in my life. I, I, and I'm so, I, I feel nothing. Like, help me just weep over the sin in, in my life. True repentance, just like all good things, is a gift from God. We can't just muster up, oh, I'm just going to not sin anymore. I'm just going to, oh, white knuckle it. No, no, it doesn't work like that. I'm sure you've tried that. I've tried that. Now, nah, repentance is probably going to last about three days, three hours, three minutes. I'll tell you this. If we want to obey the command to rend our hearts, and why wouldn't we want that? Why would you waste the good suffering? You know what I mean? Right? We must ask God to grant us Repentance. And that's exactly what we see in 2 Timothy 2.25. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Can we just pray for that? Lord, we see sin in our life. We see, I just struggle. I don't have victory over this area in my life. And I, I just keep on falling the same way. Lord, would you please grant repentance, genuine repentance. But specifically, help it just to be broken and to weep and mourn over my sin. Do you know what one of the biggest hindrances and one of the biggest obstacles in having and getting a broken heart? It is a neglect that often characterizes us. It characterizes me. A neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. Relational aspect of sinning. Let me just explain to you what I mean by that. Think about the closest relationship that you have. Probably your wife, your husband, you know, well, if you have a wife, I truly hope this is the closest relationship that you have. Uh, so, so here's a question. What is the first thing that goes through your mind as you mess up and you sin against her or against him or against that, the closest person in your life? What, what, what goes through your mind? What's the first thing that goes through your mind? Is it, snap, I can't believe I did this the third time this month and you know, it doesn't look good on my record and, and I'm not performing that well lately. Is, is it that? It's like, ah, oh, man, I just, oh, I messed up again. Is it that? Is that the first thing that goes through your mind? 
Is it a failure to perform really well in your marriage? Is it, are you first disappointed in your inability to do what is right? Is that what comes to mind? Or is it, I can't believe I just broke my wife's heart because I love her and she loves me. And that intimacy has been breached by my sin. So it's not a failure to perform better, but a failure of intimacy, right? Listen, we can view sin as a failure of performance or disappointment in our inability to do what is right rather than a failure of intimacy. And if that's the case, that's really twisted. I'll tell you right now, and I do it too. That doesn't get to the heart of repentance. It does not. You may miss And we may miss the heart of repentance if the only grief you experience is disappointment in your inability to do what is right. Sure, that's secondary. We should assess ourselves and we should be bummed and bummed out and say, oh man, I messed up. Sure. But what's the first thing that you feel? What's the first thing that grieves you, right? I can't believe I lied again. I can't believe I looked at porn again. I can't believe that was immoral again. Oh man, I suck. Uh, No, that's wrong. It's wrong to feel that first. It shows, it points to something that, that, something in our heart that should not be. It points to our hearts and it points to the fact that that repentance is not genuine. No, the grief that we should experience first should be Characterized by one exclamation, I can't believe I broke God's heart. I can't believe I have despised the living God, as, as David said when Samuel confronted him in 2 Samuel 12, 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in your eyes? And David just breaks down into weeping and mourning. And as we're going through the Northern Kingdom prophets with our discipleship groups on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we, we, Hosea is pretty special, isn't it? We hear how the Israelites have prostituted themselves to other gods and have committed adultery of the heart, right, against God. See, when we sin, we play the part of an adulterer. That's what we do. Who looks for satisfaction in another. When we know that the only satisfaction comes from Christ, from Jesus Christ. This is why David said in Psalm 51.4 to the Lord, against you, you alone, I have sinned. David rightly saw his failures in terms of relationship. And, and as a result, his heart was grieved because he loved God and God loved him. There was a breach in the intimacy of that relationship. But man, thank God. Thank God for the cross, Right? Thank God for his redemptive plan at Calvary because he fixed all of our breaches, all of our infringements, all of our violations caused by our sin and our relationship with God by nailing them to the cross. Let me say this last thing about repentance for now. True repentance comes not merely by understanding the relational aspect of sinning. So what we just talked about, that you, hey, I broke God's heart. That's not the only thing. But by understanding the nature of the one with whom we are in relationship with. Understanding God's nature. Just think about that for a second. It's not just, oh, I broke God's heart. My goodness, Father, I'm so sorry. I'm weeping over that. My heart is breaking because I broke your heart, but not just that. It's by understanding the nature of God. In other words, by understanding how infinitely glorious our God is. You look at your sin, it's just, I, I did that to this absolutely amazing God for 30 seconds. I gave this intimacy, I breached this intimacy for, for that, Right? In other words, the more we see God as glorious and holy, the more we will see sin as something to weep over and to grieve over. Repentance is less about feeling bad because our sinful behavior, right? But repentance should be more about feeling awe and delight towards God, this amazing God. I can't believe that I did that to the most holy and good and loving being in the universe. And the more glimpses we have, of the glory of God, 
glimpses of how beautiful he is, of how holy he is and good and loving and sovereign he is, the more we mourn for belittling, mocking, and rejecting that glory. So let me ask you then, when you sin and mess up, what's the first thing that you do? What's the first thing that you feel? Do you ever weep over the fact that you broke God's heart? I'm not saying to live in a state like that. No, 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 no. But something needs to be fixed before we can live this newness of life and victory. And it doesn't matter, again, if we're we're 20, 30, 50, 80. It doesn't matter. Do you weep and mourn over your sin? I wonder why... I wonder if America is in the state that it is because we just simply, we've forgotten how to weep and mourn over our sin. We're probably at a different stage lower, but I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud here. We need to be brokenhearted people who have learned to mourn over their sin. Let's continue with verses 4 to 6. Kind of a peculiar cluster of verses. So verse, verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he made a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sin, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Before we get into step 2 and 3, because the first one was repenting, right? Before we get into step 2 and 3, to turning to God, of turning to God, um, let's just touch on this weird attire and diet of John the Baptist, just for a quick second here. And I think it points us to, to the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Now, he does it a little too well. But this is a life where you do not use more than you need so that you are not distracted by physical wealth or possessions. How does that sit with us living in the West? Or we have so much. This is how Richard Foster puts it. Simplicity sets us free to receive the provision of God as a gift that is not ours to keep and can be freely shared with others. So John the Baptist lives a life of simplicity and we're called to live a life of simplicity. Yes, even here in the West. Now I'm not saying go and eat locusts and honey and that's it. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. But we have way too much stuff here. And when you have a lot of stuff, well, guess what? You're going to be anxious and worried a lot more, and you're going to fear that someone's going to take it. And then there's all these things that happen with more stuff, right? So, so he does it a little too well, quote unquote. Therefore, he doesn't have the idolatry and the physical attachments that come from wealth so often. But we do, because we have so much. That sometimes lead us to the point of spiritual consumerism because we'll bring that mentality into church and all we want to do is listen to sermons and another one and another one, another service, another beautiful worship set. Come on, another, another, another. What are you doing with all that, by the way? (laughs) Are you applying any of that to your life? Spiritual consumerism. Let's focus now on this verse 6 where we see the second and the third step in turning to God. So it's very clear. Confession in baptism, confession, we're not going to touch on baptism. I think we all know kind of what, what that is. But I do want to speak a few words about confession. And I want to say this. When repentance is genuine, when repentance, step one is genuine, in that you weep and mourn over your sin and there's some other stuff in there, right? When repentance is genuine, confession comes easily. It just kind of flows out. No one's got to pull it out of you right? When our hearts are broken over the sin in our life because we have broken God's heart and we see how amazing he is, confession comes easily. It does. The problem in the world is not that we're all, we're all broken and we, we sin in different ways. The problem is that we're, we're not honest about our sin. We're just not. So we don't confess it in a biblical way. We don't confess it in a genuine way. So are we truthful about the sin in our life? Are we? Are we saying about our sin what God says about our sin? Because that's exactly what confession is. If you go in the original, in the Greek word, that's, that's exactly what it is. Saying about your sin what God says about your sin. That's what it is. That's what confession is. But see, confession requires a lot more than just taking a posted note 
and putting it on your behavior, saying that it's sin. It's just a lot more than that. Because you can say, yeah, God, you call you called this you know, immorality sin. I'll call it sin too. Okay, great. Okay, forgive me. No, no, no. To confess means to agree with God that our sin is sin. But at the same time, to see how destructive it is. And then it means to accept responsibility for it and then turn from it. And God's amazing promise from, you know, 1 John 1, 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive us. Then and only then, if we call sin what God calls sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse us. Right? So repentance, first step. Confession. Let's continue with verses 7 to 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, ouch, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that one of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, that is a message of judgment. And we said we're going to be a church that will not skip over passages and over words. So we have to talk about this. And I think in speaking in this way, you see that John the Baptist is actually a prophet similar, very similar, very similar style as any other, other old covenant prophets right you know who would go before the israel and the leaders of israel and they would preach these kind of words of judgment telling them to turn away from their wicked ways and turn back to god right so i'm not saying to go to your neighbors and co-workers and invite them to church and call them a brood of vipers that's not what we're saying here this morning probably not a good evangelism technique there right yeah and yet we just have to be real about this. That Jesus called the religious leaders a brood of vipers. It's there. So what do we do with that? We have to be real that Jesus talked about branches cut down and thrown into the fire. Even in our passage, unquenchable fire, if you don't bring fruit. So we have to be real about these kind of messages of judgment that we come across in Scripture, right? They don't make the greatest devotional passages, sure, you know, that would encourage us and uplift us for the day, but we have to take them seriously. Amen? One note on this as well. Notice that one of the hardest critics of judgment from both John the Baptist and Jesus himself, do not go to the sinners and tax collectors. Did you notice that? The harshest words of judgment go to the religious leaders and the elites. They go to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They go to the teachers of the law and Jesus was known as a friend of the tax collectors and sinners, but when it came to the religious leaders, man, Jesus was letting it fly. He held no punches back, right? And if you are a religious person, because you don't necessarily have to just teach to be that. No, it could be anyone, any Christian, or anyone that says that is a Christian, right? If you're a religious person, I would say be warned by these words of John. Because the danger is the more religious we are, the more religious you are, the more religious activity that you do, right? The more times you've attended church or, or you've given money or you're going through the motions, the more we have those things in our lives, the less we recognize our need for a Savior. Let's just pay attention to that. We can easily go through the motions and then, ah, somehow you think that because I've done this and this and this, well, God needs to love me now. God needs to save me now. No, no, no. And that's why John is calling out the Pharisees and all the religious leaders here. He's saying, listen, you guys are coming out in the, in the wilderness to get baptized, and I know exactly what you guys are doing. He's seeing right through their schemes. They're just trying to get this baptism added to their portfolio, to their religious checklist. I also give money. I also fast. I also do this and that. Look at our heritage. We are children of Abraham. That's what the Bible said. It's the highest status in the land. What he's really telling them is to genuinely repent and not to just add some more religious activity to their lives, but to genuinely repent and recognize their need for a savior. What they really need is a change of heart. 
Or in other words, to bear fruit, because that's exactly what he's saying. Produce fruit, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. So this brings us to the step, step number four of turning to God, to bear fruit. Do you bear fruit? Am I bearing fruit? What's fruit? What's, what? I didn't even know that there's fruit to bear. Do we bear fruit? Do we analyze? Do you analyze yourselves bearing fruit? Do you keep a track of what's going on in your life? Do we do that? There are really two kinds of fruit that we see in Scripture. We see internal fruit, like Paul talks about in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which is the passage that mentions the fruit of the Spirit, the cluster of nine beautiful fruit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control right? There's nine of them. So this is the fruit that the Holy Spirit himself bears in us, inside of us, a change that comes from inside out because he lives there, right? That's what we, uh, we get to be the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? Now think about the fact that when you come to Christ, when you turn your life to God internally, your life starts to look different, right? It should. Otherwise we should you know, really question, are we really saved? And that's because one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, again, lives inside of us, is to bear fruit in us. You should have greater levels of joy, by the way. You should have, you know, more self-control, right? You should be more faithful, right? Therefore, we should be inviting the Holy Spirit to do a deep work in our soul. Are you? Am I? So these are the internal fruit that we should be growing in. But there, there is also external fruit, right? The external fruit is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. External works. They're actually external good works that we should do as we follow Jesus. But... Now, this external category is, is pretty big, right? But we could definitely include in here serving people in all kinds of ways, serving at church in all kinds of ways, using your specific skills and gifts and passions to serve people, to serve God, right? It could be giving money and being generous, right? It could be lifting someone up with words of encouragement. There's so many things. It could be a specific ministry that God has called you to. It could be washing toilets. It could be stacking up chairs after a community picnic, after all the religious people have left, and now you're stuck with, you know, stacking up chairs. Now, I don't want us to get this wrong, though, and get John the Baptist wrong, ultimately get God wrong. He is not saying that fruits that you bear will save you. He is not saying that. He is not saying that you are saved because you bear those fruits and you do all these things. No, he is not saying. In fact, he's saying the opposite of that. Remember that he just condemned the religious leaders for relying on their own righteousness, relying on their own heritage as a means for salvation. Here's what he's saying. We demonstrate the genuineness of our repentance by the fruit in our lives. Real life change, fruit, real fruit, always happens as a reaction to being genuinely saved. The proof is in the pudding. And this happens, doesn't happen overnight, that as soon as we give our life to Jesus, we become perfect. No, no, that's not the case. This is a lifetime of changing and looking more and more like Christ. The Bible calls this the process of sanctification, right? But here's what I want to say about bearing fruit and growing in it. The bearing of the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears in your heart, namely the first category that we looked at, right? So the love and the joy and the peace that the Holy Spirit bears in us will always come out, will always be expressed through the external fruit. And that is inevitable, right? So there's always a connection between the two categories. First, the Spirit bears in us, the fruit inside, right, changes us from the inside, and that always comes out through the external works. There's a connection there. But you can definitely look like you're bearing fruit on the outside, but not bearing genuine fruit on the inside. Huh. 
You can always look like you're bearing fruit on the, on the, on the outside. Oh, wow, he seems so nice. She seems so respectful, so gentle. But the inside could be a whitewashed tomb, a grave. I really think that we see a lot of that in our, in our churches today. Seriously. External fruit that is very shallow. Kind of like a fake smile. Dude, you hate me inside. I know that. But you're just smiling at me. These are works that have no genuine foundation. They don't come from the Spirit. They were not bore by the Spirit, but they come from an ungodly motivation of the heart. And I think we do it all the time because we want to look like the other Christians. I want to look like I'm loving. I want to look like I'm gentle and I'm self-controlled, right? I, I, I want to. The Bible says that these works will burn, will burn. But the genuine fruit that the Spirit bears in us internally will always come out, will always express itself externally and bless others. You don't have to muster up, oh, love, love, love. No, 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 no. If you focus on Christ, if you, your life is about prayer and intimacy with the Lord, if your life is about the Bible, going deep in the Bible, if your life is about fellowship and church and serving, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit will and will you know, inevitably bear fruit in your life. You don't have to muster up love and no, no, no. It will just come out. But there's an investment there. There's an investment there. As we use Paul's list to examine ourselves, to see if we are actually bearing fruit, one important thing to keep in mind is this. As we're going through our series, we need to examine ourselves not when all things in life are going well, but when we're going through suffering, through the wild, when my closest brother offends me and the real me comes out, that's not very loving and very gentle. That's when we examine ourselves and see how much fruit we bore. The reality is that I may appear patient and gentle and kind when I'm all alone in my apartment and when everything is going well, and, and, but, but what about when I don't have that comfort anymore? What about when I'm sick and I can't pay my bills and, and people are so annoying and frustrating and like I just want to, you know, say it like it is, right? Suffering has a way of revealing to us how far we have come in bearing the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. It has a way of just really revealing the true us. It surfaces. Oh, wow, you're uglier than I thought. You know what I mean? That's usually the case. So I like to ask ourselves some questions. You know, I love questions and I love examinations, giving us an opportunity to examine ourselves. I'm not going to go through the nine. A question for each of the, each of the fruit, just, just three or four. When it comes to joy, how is the level of joy in your life when you go through suffering? How is it? Is it growing? Is it even existent? Do we murmur and complain all the time? Because this is where... It shows if we're actually bearing fruit or not. When you go through suffering and the real you comes out. When it comes to peace, do you strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Especially when others have offended you. How do we do that? When it comes to patience, are you growing in your ability to overlook offenses? When you've been hurt by others? Kindness, do you not only overlook offenses, but also repay them with love? And are we growing in that? One last one, self-control. Do you refuse your flesh's cravings, especially when you have been wronged? This is very, very hard. Well, my, my wife is doing this all the time, and I just can't. I'm going to do this because I, I, you know, I sh you know I'm, I'm okay doing this because she's always sinning against me. Uh, 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 uh. Do you refuse your flesh's cravings because someone has wronged you? And did you know that there's no middle ground? They're mutually exclusive. You either bear fruit or you live in the flesh, one or the other. I'm not saying we're living perfectly here, but there's no middle ground. If we are not growing in, in, in the fruit of the Spirit, if you're not growing in love and joy and patience and kindness, then the works of the flesh are gaining control over us. Did you know that? There's no middle ground. So then we must return back to genuine repentance confession and bearing fruit.
This is really tough, I know. And I'm really trying to examine my own life and how I'm, if I'm bringing and bearing fruit in my life. Let's continue and end the message with the last two verses, 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I. Keep those words in mind. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, ooh, that's a difficult Bible verse to end a teaching time with, right? That's what we're ending it with because that's the end of that section. That's not a verse that you would see on a Christian greeting card. It wouldn't. (laughs) And yet we have to be serious about these kinds of messages and verses. We're not going to skim over. We're not. Because it wasn't just guys like John the Baptist, crazy guys in the wild that were preaching this message. No, 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 no. Jesus is the one who talks most about this kind of stuff, eternal judgment. Out of everyone in the Bible, did you know that? The loving Jesus. And he does that because he is loving, actually. Here's a quote I came across by a Bible scholar by the name of Michael Wilkins, and I think it demonstrates the posture of my heart about a passage like this. And I quote, Not many of us would relish giving this kind of hell and brimstone sermon. We we don't like to offend. But we must be clear about this warning for ourselves and for those around us. That's exactly what we want to do. We end our teaching text right here. And I want to leave all the cards on the table. I really want to do that. I don't want to read a verse like that with a smile on my face because not much to smile about when it comes to that. Or read a verse like that to scare people or manipulate people. Hey, the judgment is coming. Come on, come on. No, no, we don't want to do that either. In becoming a better Christian or a genuine Christian, no. And yet, I want to be honest and clear about what the Bible is teaching. That Jesus means good news for those who repent. Jesus means good news. Jesus means life and resurrection for those who repent. Jesus means, you know, living with God forever for those who repent. Jesus means, you know, every spiritual blessing in the spiritual realm for those who repent, though. But for those who continue to rebel, well, then what Jesus means is judgment and wrath. And he means not an eternal life, but eternal hell and away from God forever. That is serious. So I want to be clear and I want to be serious about the message today. I believe that it's times and times like these that we are living today. A global pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, when the world is in chaos and turmoil and it just, what is going on in the world, right? It's time like these in the wilderness that really exposes what our hope is in. Emily, would you mind coming up? Thank you. I say this with a sad heart. I really do. I remember when the pandemic hit a year and a half ago. And I think I noticed for a little while a desire and a hunger for God from people. Kind of generally speaking, you know. Like, people were excited about Bible studies, and people were like, hey, let's pray, let's fast, let's turn to God. I was like, yes, that's awesome. Sadly, I don't think I see that anymore. Now, again, I don't have eyes everywhere. I'm sure there's a revival somewhere going on. Praise God for that. But I know a lot of pastors in our network, EFCA, a lot of pastors, none of their churches are packed. There's no revival going on, right? And I wonder, and I was thinking this week, I wonder how much worse does it need to get in the wilderness for people to really seek God with all their heart. And I'm not even talking about the unchurched. I'm talking about us Christians. You don't hear, again, churches that are being packed. And I don't, I don't hear, I don't see people coming here 15, 20 minutes before and in prayer, Lord, just bring a revival in our community. Lord, we want to burn for you, Lord. I, I, we, don't, we don't see that. That's the reality. We don't see that. You don't hear people being hungry for God in general. I'm not saying that you are not hungry for God. Do not misunderstand my heart. There's still an apathy, yes. And we have to call it like it is. We have such a laissez-faire kind of an attitude, I believe. 
If someone were to film our life like a reality TV show, I don't think the audience could tell that we love Jesus too much. I put myself in the same category, that He's our King, that He's our Lord and Savior like we claim all the time. And that right there, friends, that right there shows you what people have their hope in. It shows you what we're clinging to. I think we're more concerned about the political state of our country than seeking God and the kingdom first. I'll be honest with you, because that's the conversation that we have all the time. It's like, hey, brother, let's go on our knees and seek God together. Let's take a few days of fasting, you know, that God will do a great work in Garden City and in our country. Let's do that. Ah, but you don't understand, man. If you know, I don't do anything right now, they're forcing us to take the vaccine and I might lose my job. So let, yeah, I'll talk to you later. I'm not saying let's not be good stewards and fight for freedom and, and, and do what we need. To. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that our knee-jerk reaction is to fix our circumstances first. Then it is to trust in God and seek God in prayer and seek His will and His word. That's what we do. Our knee-jerk reaction is to fix our problems right away so that we can have our freedom back, so we can have our comfort back, so we can have our toys and luxury back, essentially to have our idols back. I'm, I, I grieve when I, when I preach to myself this because it's so true in my life as well. I hear this all the time. Hey, we need to fight for our freedom because otherwise you won't have a church to attend to next weekend, man. To which I say, friend, you've never been serious about the church in the first place. You were never serious about loving God or serving God, especially when you were the freest men alive because you were too busy being free, worshiping all of your idols. Maybe, and maybe through this season of suffering in the world, maybe God can get us to see the true condition of our heart. Maybe. People have their hope and their wealth and finances, and it's so funny because we're not even that rich. <laughs> but we still have our hope in the cars that we still pay to the bank, you know what I mean? And the houses that we pay mortgage on, and it's funny. But we see how unstable the economy is, don't we? People have their hope in their health and physical well-being. And even if that's not taken away by this virus, COVID-19, then your health will be taken away one day. Just like Lucas said last week, and man, I hate to break it to you, but our bodies will continue to deteriorate. That's just life on planet Earth. We will all die at some point, right? People put their hope in their relationships and people and in caring and loving parents and kids, but relationships come and go. And people, we all have an expiration date on our physical bodies. We do. We, we have our hope in all kinds of things. And at the end of the day, I think the message to us this morning from John, ultimately from God, is this. Is that Jesus is much better than all of our idols put together. I think that's what he was trying to get at. Jesus is better than all of our hopes that we hold on to so tightly. He is. I believe that's the heart of the message of John the Baptist. He's trying to warn people about, yeah, the coming judgment and, hey, if you don't repent and turn from your idols and, and false hopes, but really he is saying that Jesus is so much better. And I love it that in verse 11, if you look back, he says, Jesus is more powerful than I. He's more mightier than I. People actually thought that John was actually the Messiah or at least that he could be the Messiah or the Savior and he couldn't have been any more clear that I'm not the Savior, I'm not the Messiah. He said, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. By the way, that's, that's the job of a slave. John the Baptist is like, I'm not even worthy to be a slave to Messiah, to the Messiah. That's exactly what our idols are shouting to us on a daily basis. Jesus is so much better than I am, but you've been a fool for trusting in me. So here's the message for you if you're a Christian. For all of us, would you turn to God in a genuine way? Would you pray that you could have that gift of weeping and mourning over the sin in our lives so that we can 
so that we can have victory over our sins, so that we can truly turn back to God and focus on Christ. Would you turn away from your idols? Would I, Ovi, would you turn away from your idols, comfort, whatever it is, and then turn to God? And then would you point people to Jesus, just like John the Baptist was doing, and tell them that Jesus is so much better? That's the message. Just as John was preparing the way for the Lord, so can you, so can I. Would you just be passionate and excited again over this amazingly good news that we have? Would you legitimately believe that the gospel is good news again? And just let's just share that with people, with our neighbors, with our friends. Would you just share that you're experiencing hope because you have to experience hope if He is your Savior and, and healing and that you're experiencing fruit in your life. Would you just share those things with your neighbors and co-workers and friends? Share that Jesus is better. And in doing so, you can prepare the way for the Messiah in their hearts. Jesus through us can actually bring hope and healing to a broken world that right now more than ever in our lifetime is so desperate for good news. The good news that can save our souls. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.